When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Three great words. Free fries Friday. Especially when they're used in that exact order. Get a free medium fries with $1 minimum purchase. Bell one time on Friday. participating McDonald's through 1231.24. Excludes tax. Must update rewards. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Battleground podcast with me, Saul David and Patrick Bishop. We're now a week into the third year of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine and thankfully the news is a little rosier for Kyiv. First came the announcement on Monday that Sweden will become the 32nd member of NATO after Hungary had dropped its objections. And this will effectively turn the Baltic into a NATO lake and might lead to the supply of modern Gripen fighter planes to Ukraine. Meanwhile, at uh, an important gathering of 20 world leaders in Paris in support of Kyiv, the French President Emmanuel Macron refused to rule out Western troops being deployed to fight in Ukraine. We will do everything needed, he said, so Russia cannot win the war. Well, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said much the same thing in a speech at Hostomel Airport, just outside Kyiv. That's, of course, where Ukrainian soldiers fought off Russian paratroopers in the very opening days of this war. Uh, speaking at a ceremony attended by Ursula von der Leyen, the uh, president of the European Commission, Justin Trudeau, the Canadian prime minister, etc., he said, we will win. Two years ago, we were met by hostile fire here. Two years later, we're welcoming our friends. Well, the Ukrainian military also claimed to have shot down another Russian A-50 spy plane worth $330 million, uh, but some Russian bloggers are claiming it was actually shot down by friendly fire. Either way, it's another major blow to Russian air capability. Yes, Patrick, but less welcome for Ukraine was the continued refusal of German Chancellor Olaf Scholz to send long-range Taurus missiles to Kyiv, and the admission by the Ukrainian military that it has withdrawn from two villages close to Abdivka, Severne and Stepove, and Adivka, of course, is the city captured by the Russians last week. And in an unusually downbeat assessment, the British Ministry of Defence said that despite its losses, Russia now has a bigger force in Ukraine than at the start of the war and is, I quote, able to maintain attacks along the front line and pursue a strategy of attrition. We're going to discuss the significance of all of this, of course. But first, Patrick, that news that Sweden is joining NATO, how did it come about and what do you think it will mean for Russia? Well, it, it came about uh, because the Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban dropped objections, which go all the way back to 2022, to uh, Sweden's accession. And this was partly uh, due to a, an arms deal that they've done with Sweden, including the delivery of four of these uh, Gripen fighter jets. Apparently, there's a possibility that Gripen jets will also go to Ukraine, which... Um, couldn't have happened bef before the accession to NATO. And this, this would be a, a big addition to uh, Ukraine's air arsenal because they're, you know, they're pretty handy 
aircraft, they're easy to maintain, they're kind of very maneuverable, they can land on a road, etc. And they're pretty effective, they pack a lot of firepower. But what this really means, Saul, as you said at the top, is that you know, Putin's worst nightmares, all the things that he's been claiming uh, NATO were secretly planning, have now come to pass completely as a result of, of his aggression. So NATO countries now effectively surround the Baltic, and this ends you know, Sweden's very long-standing neutrality. So, like I say, Putin's invaded Ukraine in the hopes of pushing back NATO from Russia's borders, but precisely the opposite has happened. But let's get back to that uh, that meeting in Paris. What do you make of that hint? Uh, it wasn't really openly stated, was it? It was, it was more of a kind of hint than anything else from Macron that NATO troops might actually end up going in to fight alongside Ukraine. What's that all about, do you think, Saul? Well, it's fascinating stuff, really, isn't it? If we consider that France has been a relatively lukewarm uh, supporter, certainly in terms of the financial aid uh, and arms that it's given to Ukraine. It's ramping that up, to be fair. But if you look at the actual money that France has spent, it's minuscule compared to Germany. So a lot of this might be rhetoric. And if we go back to the start of the story, it began last week with Slovakian Prime Minister Robert Fico, who is considered to be effectively a pro-Russian populist, saying that NATO and EU members, but not Slovakia, he uh, he was minded to say, were preparing to send troops to Ukraine. He didn't give any details. Now, this was taken up by Macron in Paris, who said sending Western troops to fight there could not be ruled out as more had to be done to support Ukraine. He added, we're at a critical point in the conflict where we need to take the initiative. He also went on to effectively say, well, I'm not sending combat troops, I'm sending sort of support troops, but the overall point was made. And he added in what was almost certainly a deliberate swipe at the German Chancellor, Olaf Scholz, many of the people who say never, never today were the same people who said never, never, never tanks, never, never planes, never, never long range missiles two years ago. I remind you that two years ago, many around this table said, we will offer sleeping bags and old helmets. And that's really a reference to Germany's initial offer of just helmets. So it's all fascinating, isn't it? And uh, there has been a bit of a response from other European countries. uh, And not surprisingly, they're downplaying all this, Patrick. Germany's saying absolutely not. So is Britain. So is the head of NATO. So, uh, you know, they're underplaying what he said. But do you think it's possible that the French are serious about this, Patrick? Well, I think you know, it's, it's more about Macron, I think, than the French. Uh, I think he's feeling some embarrassment at that uh, di- diplomatic initiative he took at the start of the war. We all remember that when he presented himself as the man who could bridge the gap between Moscow and the West and bring a swift end to the fighting. Well, we all know how that turned out. But since then, he's been building himself up as the toughest talking most hawkish uh, figure on the European scene. He's always seen himself as a man of destiny. And I think it's true that he is probably the most powerful shaper of European strategy today. He's got the most sort of uh, stature. He's got the most prestige. But it's encouraging to see that he's he's now atoned for his earlier apparent appeasement of Putin in, in quite a convincing Fashion. He's learned his lesson. He, you know, he's a he's a he's a, a man who thinks quite highly of himself. You know, I do too, actually. Unlike a lot of Brits, I actually think he's uh, got a, a lot going for him. And of course, he doesn't like being made a fool of. And so, I think Ukraine has a firm friend in Macron, and so he'll be in place until at least twenty twenty seven, spring of twenty 
27 when the next presidential elections are held. Then, of course, we've got the prospect of Marine Le Pen in power. I think that's a very serious threat, uh, and that, that would be a, a very different kettle of fish. On the Germans, I'd just like to say that although Schultz is still treading very cautiously on this escalation question, Germany is you know, really seriously retooling to make itself a bulwark against Russia. We tend to focus on Schultz, but we should also look at, at uh, the figure of its defence minister, Boris Pistorius, who's leaving the, leading the campaign to get the country Kriegstukig. Kriegstukig. I think that's how you say it. And that means war capable, building up its defence industry, boosting the armed forces. There's even talk of bringing back conscription. And Germany is now, we shouldn't forget, on track to be Europe's biggest military spender. That's ahead of France and Britain by 2025. All this, I might say, with the approval of most of the public. But having said that, I think you're right. So what, what did Macron actually mean? Is there a real threat of NATO boots fighting men on, on Ukrainian soil? I don't think so. I think it's really to slap down FICO, who is clearly going to be a negative factor in building European unity over Ukraine. But what about uh, Zelensky's speech? So did he say anything new to you in that? Well, not in that speech. I mean, that was nothing particularly out of the ordinary to mark the two-year anniversary. It was really, in effect, trying to boost morale at home by insisting victory is still possible. And why wouldn't you say that? But he said a couple of other interesting things last week that I think were more significant. And the first one was that more counteroffensives were in the offing. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, that we're assuming it's really going to be defensive all the way in 2024 for Ukraine and the opposite for Russia. But he's saying, absolutely not. We are planning more counteroffensives. He also admitted that war plans, this is another extraordinary uh, detail, Patrick, that war plans for the counteroffensives last year, those much anticipated counteroffensives that didn't come to much, they were actually passed to the Russians. And to avoid a similar issue this year, in other words, the Russians got their hands on them and therefore were able to counteract them even more effectively than they would have been. And he's going to get around that this year by having lots of duplicates made. Well, in other words, lots of separate plans, only only some of which will actually be the genuine ones. So that was interesting. And then the third really fascinating thing that was said by Zelensky last week was uh, to give a specific total of the number of Ukrainian casualties in the war in terms of fatalities. And that's 29,000. Now, if that's accurate, that does mean that the total casualties, probably in the region about 100,000, if we use the usual metric, maybe 120. And that is certainly less than a lot of people were thinking. I mean, the Russians almost certainly over probably up to 350,000 in total casualties. So it does show you that the Ukrainians, if these figures are genuine, have actually been quite effective at keeping their total numbers of dead down, which, which is very good to hear. And the other bit of good news, of course, was the downing of, of another A-50 spy plane. This, Patrick, is much more significant than it seems on the surface. There's more detail coming out about this. Budanov, the head of military intelligence, said recently that Russia had only six left now, this means that if one more is knocked down, they won't have the capability to pay A-50 planes up on a kind of rotating basis. Why are they important? Because they are vital for both air attack and defense with their sophisticated radar. And what's been interesting in the last few days is that the Ukrainians are reporting no activity by A-50 spy planes in the vicinity. And this plane itself was actually shot down a fair way from the front line. 
as you said, Patrick, at the top, there the uh, a lot of Russian commentators, mill bloggers, are suggesting it was shot down by their own side. But I think that's highly unlikely. I think this is a you know an attempt to reduce the credit that Ukraine deserves for taking out what is an unbelievably effective bit of kit. And that really might make a difference to the air war as we go ahead. We're noticing increasing numbers of sophisticated Russian fighter jets being shot down, and that may be connected to all of this. But not everything is going Ukraine's way, sadly, Patrick, is it? No, well, we've still got this, you know, this, as we mentioned, this German refusal to send the Tauruses, which, which have got a 310-mile range to Ukraine. Why? We, we The only explanation is this fear of escalation, which I think we both agree is really, there isn't much to be gained by holding back at this point. But that's something that, that you have to look into Olive Schultz's mind to uh, to fathom, and I'm not capable of doing that. You've got these Russian uh, offensives all over the place, multiple directions. Apparently, they made gains in and around Avdivka, Bakhmut, Bakhmut's back on the map again, Robert Digne and Kerinki. That's that the Dnipro bridgehead, which we haven't talked about much in recent weeks. We should actually have a proper look at that at some point soon. So all this is, of course, is, you know, it's nibbling away at the Ukrainian defences until more ammunition and anti-air missiles, of which they're in sore need, are provided. Does all this add up to a major breakthrough? What do you think, Saul? No, I don't think so. And I don't think it anticipates a major breakthrough either. There are the usual <laughs> calamity chains in the Western analyst community suggesting that it, you know it's Russia all the way now uh, and that better to negotiate sooner rather than later when things are only going to get worse. I mean, that, in my view, is complete nonsense. If we consider that Ukraine's been fighting with a one in 10 disadvantage in artillery shells. And that's the kind of major weapon of this type of, you know, attritional warfare. It gives you a sense of the fact that they haven't lost more ground is pretty astonishing. And as soon as those ammunition levels get up to anything like parity, even 50%, um, you can see they're going to be a lot more effective. And don't just take my word for it, Patrick. The ISW, who we've relied on as the most objective Western source to what's going on in Ukraine, gives this as its latest assessment. And I quote, the situation today is grey, but it is far from hopeless. Russian forces have regained the initiative across the theatre and are attacking and making gains. Those gains thus far are very limited and extremely costly. More Russian soldiers have likely died to seize Avdivka than died in the entire Soviet-Afghan war. Ukrainians are weary and worried that American military assistance will cease, but they continue to fight with determination ingenuity and skill. Ukraine's air defenders are dropping Russian planes from the sky, while Ukrainian drone and missile operators sink Russian ships. And Ukrainian soldiers are fighting for their positions against Russian meat assaults using drones in novel ways, as well as the artillery, tanks, and traditional weapons of war available to them. The Ukrainian Air Force will receive its first F-16s in the coming months, and Ukraine's allies are racing to make good deficiencies in other war material. I mean, they go on to say in their assessment that they are concerned that America will turn the taps off, as indeed are we, Patrick. But you can see from Macron's comments and the actions of Germany that Europe nevertheless is stepping up. And on the subject of unmanned drones, I should just mention, as I've just had a, a WhatsApp exchange with uh, Lieutenant Colonel Pavlo Hazan, and I'm delighted to report that he's doing well. He returned to his duties from hospital in early January. I asked him about the situation in uh, Ukraine, and he said that he's an optimist, but they're up against a strong opponent. 
Yeah, it's interesting that. So it's good to hear that, that Pablo's back because he was, as, as listeners will recall, he was basically just worn out, wasn't he? I mean, he, he just had to take time out to recharge his batteries. So it's good that he's back and that he's in good spirits. On that thing about the, the numbers uh, dying in Avdiivka, I mean, this is, we've got to always remember, haven't we, that how ignorant we actually are about events in Russia, about what the mood is in Russia. You know, the, the absence of independent media there, you know, the fact that n- nothing that actually comes out of official sources can be relied on means that we really are in the dark, but just standing back and looking at it. You know, that's an extraordinary statistic, isn't it? The fact that, you know, all those years of fighting in Afghanistan and, and it only took a couple of weeks, really, uh, for the fighting around Avdiivka to produce the same death toll, same casualty toll. So, you know, these losses are not nothing. Much has been made of the fact that those are, who are doing the dying are, you know, from the from the periphery, there's some poor communities at the edge of uh, the kind of, you know, Russia proper. But that doesn't mean, say, they don't have their impact on local communities and that in turn, you know, eroding loyalty to the centre. I just want to go back to the the killing of Alexei Navalny, which I think will come to be seen as a very significant event in this story. So the killing of Navalny and the authorities' reaction to it in particular. Now, the more I think about it, the more this looks uh, like weakness on the part of the Kremlin uh, rather than strength. I mean, why kill him in the first place? And having done so, why this cruel treatment of his mother, Lyudmila, and his widow, Yulia withholding the body for burial, only handing it over after much official lying and obfuscation. This only happened a few days ago. And this sort of resonates with ordinary people, doesn't it? This is an act of sheer cruelty. Whatever your political outlook is, no matter how sort of you know patriotic you may feel, this is just an act of sheer spite, which can only reflect badly on Putin and his gang. Apparently, he's going to be laid to rest on Friday in Moscow, not quite sure about the circumstances, but the the Kremlin clearly was worried that the burial could be a focus for anti-regime anger, and that shows a high degree of concern about public opinion, which is rather at odds with all the kind of swagger and the arrogance to which the regime publicly reacted to the international outrage at Navalny's death. Now, you know, he's dead, but his widow, Yulia Navalnya, is a very formidable woman. And the torch that Alexei Navalny carried now passes to her. And it may be that she will be more effective leading opposition from the outside than he was, uh, having chosen to go back to Russia and conduct his campaign from behind prison walls. Well, Yulia has been abroad for the last few years, apparently in Germany. I say apparently because her whereabouts are understandably kept secret to protect her from Putin's poisoners. And she's very bravely vowed to carry on the fight. I mean, she's being compared to that Belarusian uh, politician, Svetlana Sikanuskaya, who decided to take the place of her jailed husband and and run against uh, the dictator Alexander Lukashenko in Belarus in 2020. Well, Yulia Navalnaya has made an impressive start. She's you know, the other day, she was welcomed to the White House by Joe Biden, together with uh, the Navalny's daughter, Dasha. So all is not lost uh, with Alexei Navalny's death. Far from it.
Okay, fascinating stuff, Patrick. Thanks for that. Uh, that's enough for part one. Do join us after the break when we'll be answering listeners' questions. Welcome back. Well, the first question is from Victor Silvan in Stockholm, uh, and he writes, Sweden is now going to become a NATO member. I have a question that you might be able to answer. If Trump indeed comes to power again and makes the US leave the alliance, what would the balance of power be between the remaining NATO powers and Russia? Would the joint forces of that alliance still be powerful enough to stand against Russia? And what if Turkey also left? Although Turkey and Russia are historical enemies, these days it seems a little hard to understand exactly where Turkey really has its sympathies, probably only with themselves. And if so, I guess you can't really take their commitment to any alliance too seriously. Patrick, what's your response to that? Well, just to go back to the the underlying question here, clearly a Trump administration would be a, a massive blow to NATO. Uh, at the moment, Europe still depends utterly on, on the US. I mean, just take one little example, Poland. It's got HIMARS, which is great. They've got their own HIMARS, but they need the US uh, assets to locate targets to actually identify where they're going to fire the rockets. And it's not just Trump, whatever happens in the election, large parts of the Republican Party and even elements more worryingly in the defense establishment are becoming less and less committed to Europe and are more concerned by the Pacific theater, China, of course, being their main concern. It's a rerun, isn't it, Saul, of the great strategic debate in the US of the 19, late 1930s, which saw the US Navy in particular, and indeed a lot of the public, uh, those who were uh, noticed what was going on at all, their view was that you know Japan was the main threat to American interests, not Hitler or Mussolini. So as to who's going to take the lead if America does retreat, I think on current form you'd see a Franco-German axis trying to assume control. But of course, Poland, the Baltics, now the Scandinavians are the ones who are directly in the firing line after Ukraine. So again, it's a bit of an echo of the 1930s. Whatever happens, I think it's dawning on Europe that in this uncertain world, they can only rely on themselves for their own security. So they're going to have to get their act together mighty fast. Now, Turkey, I'm sort of of a mind that, you know, Turkey's relationship with NATO was really its relationship with America, wasn't it? Rather than its relationship with Europe. So I think if America does retreat from its current level of commitment, then that will impact on Turkey. What are your thoughts about the Turkish aspect of this story? Yeah, I mean, Turkey's, of course, traditionally got a lot of its arms from the US. And you're right, there, there is that close link. Um, recently, the Turkish uh, objection to Sweden joining NATO was relieved finally when America agreed to supply more F-16s. So another arms deal that ultimately uh, uh, unlocked that problem. But yes, Patrick, as far as America's concerned, I, I, you know, you, the analogy with the 1930s is a very good one because, you know, be careful what you wish for America. There was a sense in the 1930s that, you know, we've only got to look after our own security and we're not, we, there are, we don't really face any serious strategic threats. What's going on in Europe doesn't concern us. But Americans need to see the world as a whole, as it were, and they need friends as much as we do. It's not just a question. Yes, they're absolutely right to complain that they were paying for far too much of NATO's umbrella, so to speak, for the defense of Europe. But once the other European partners step up and do begin to pay their share, 
uh, America should realize that NATO is as useful for them as it is for the rest of Europe. It's not just a question of getting NATO to fight, you know, in the Pacific. That's not going to happen. But the idea that you've got a lot of friends who are going to back you uh, and ultimately with a, with military force is going to be tremendously useful for America in the years to come. It has a lot of enemies, as does the West more generally. And we are stronger together, frankly, Patrick. Uh, now, John writes, I greatly enjoyed your podcast and was interested to hear your mention of Ambrose Evans Pritchard's piece about the Russian economy. This was last week when uh, Ambrose, who's an old colleague of mine actually on the Telegraph, uh, was writing about the underlying weaknesses in Russia's new kind of war economy, if you like, command economy. Actually, much of what he said, we'd actually referenced ourselves. But anyway, John goes on. This appears to cover much the same ground as an editorial on Bloomberg. I suspect the Bloomberg version will be better sourced and more complete than AEP's effort. But I leave it up to you to decide. You had a look at this, didn't you, Saul? Yeah, I did. And, um, you know, there's no there's no great uh, revelation in the Bloomberg piece, but it is more evidence. They make in the piece some other additional uh, sort of arguments to the weakening of the Russian economy. So the more it becomes clear to people in the West that Russia is not necessarily going to win uh, over time and therefore we need to negotiate sooner rather than later, which is what I'm afraid a lot of people are suggesting, Patrick, the better. And so pieces like this from Bloomberg are very welcome. I'm just going to quote uh, one little section which effectively sums it up. This war will almost certainly end in negotiation. I agree with that. All wars almost certainly do, unless you can impose a peace, uh, kind of, you know, insist on unconditional surrender. But, you know, that that happened in the Second World War. It's true, but it's highly unlikely. So uh, it goes on to say, for the West, the goal should be to ensure the most secure and independent Ukrainian state possible and to deter others from attempting similar land grabs. To that end, it should make the most of Putin's economic vulnerability, including by tightening sanctions and arming Ukraine. Given the political will, Western nations have ample resources to outlast him, an advantage they should use to stop the bloodshed as soon as feasible. And that, in a nutshell, Patrick, sums up, I think, what should be the West strategy. No, we shouldn't put uh, troops on the ground to fight in Ukraine, but we should make it increasingly difficult and painful for Putin to win, inverted commas, this war. I don't think he is going to win this war. The longer it goes on, the weaker his position is going to get. But as I keep saying, as long as the West, in particular Europe, but hopefully also the US, uh, stays true to their support for Ukraine. Yes, absolutely spot on, I think, Saul. Okay, got some interesting points here from Andrew in British Columbia. Hello, gents. I really enjoy the Ukraine and 1944 parts. Well, it's very good to hear about the the 44 podcast, because we love doing it and we're getting some great responses. And so if you haven't listened to it yet, do give it a whirl. It comes out on Wednesday. He said, now, Andrew asked a really interesting one, actually. Why wouldn't Ukraine move in and take over Transdenistria? This is the Moldovan enclave just on, on over Ukraine's western border, which has got some uh, Russian troops. I think they've been there for a long, long time, uh, Saul. And Andrew says they could probably get the job done without a Western kit. And I think it would be both a bargaining chip and a blight on Putin. It would certainly be the latter. Um, and there's another uh, a, a additional question. What happened? There were several, actually, but I'll just mention this one. What happened to all the US donated 155 millimeter artillery cluster musicians? Has it all been used? Already. Well, I'll answer that one straight away and then be interested to hear your thoughts on Transnistria. So, but I mentioned last week this uh, 
fascinating bit of uh, head cam footage from the battlefield of Divka, taken by a Russian as he's showing his mate round the battlefield effectively, littered with corpses and burnt out tanks, etc. But at various points he says, he says, oh, that was a cluster bomb, that was a cluster bomb. So clearly they were used extensively in that uh, Ukrainian defense of Avdivka with effect. So I don't know whether they've run out of them yet, but clearly uh, they had a pretty devastating effect on the Russians in that particular fight. Yeah, I mean, my, my take on the ammunition, Patrick, is that they're not getting anything of anything at the moment from the US. And therefore, uh, they probably almost certainly have used up the, the cluster munitions and they need them as desperately as they do the kind of standard 155 millimeter artillery shells. So that's the logjam we need to release in Congress so that more of these munitions can get to the Ukrainians. But going back to the other point, why don't they take over Transnistria? I mean, you can sort of see the sense of the question. It's low-hanging fruit, frankly, isn't it, uh, Patrick? And there are relatively few Russian troops in there. But I think this is just sort of crossing over from we're defending our land, we're removing the Russians from our territory, to we're getting involved in another country's sovereign territory. Now, it's complicated, of course, because Moldova would probably thank Ukraine for basically forcing Transnistria to be part of Moldova once again. But it's getting into dangerous diplomatic territory, uh, if you ask me. If there was a threat from Transnistria in the sense that, you know, was this the Russians were going to use it to launch an attack, that's a different matter. But there has been no indication that that's likely. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, the moral gr- high ground has always been very important to Ukraine, and and this would deal a bit of a blow to their credentials in that department, and of course, hand a uh, open goal for Moscow in propaganda terms, wouldn't it? Now, Corey from Canada is asking. Recently, the topic of Canadian Rocket Vehicle Seven, that CRV Seven, decommissioned munitions, has been discussed in the Canadian Parliament. In an interview with Global News, Lieutenant General Kirilo Budanov, of course, who's the uh, of course head of uh, military intelligence for Ukraine, urged the Canadian government to let Ukraine have the decommissioned rockets. It appears the Canadian military has no more use for them as they've been decommissioned since 2005 and are lined up to be destroyed. There's 83,000 of them currently warehoused uh, but there are concerns about the conditions of the rockets, and Canadian officials argue that they could become unstable and dangerous to transport. However, this doesn't bother the Ukrainian military, which frequently handles Cold War-era munitions. Typically, Canada and NATO allies have fitted these munitions on aircraft, but Ukraine claims to have ground launchers capable of firing the rockets. And the question is, from Corey, what impact would this have on the battlefield, do you think? You know about this, don't you, Saul? Well, I had a quick look into this, actually. I mean, this is all new news to me, but I had a quick look into that. And they, this does look to be a very effective bit of kit, Patrick. It's 70 millimetres. It was designed to be uh, fired as a, as a ground attack rocket produced by Bristol Aerospace in Winnipeg, Manitoba. So 70 millimetres introduced in the early 70s as, as an upgraded version of standard US air-to-ground rockets. And it was at that time the most powerful weapon in its class with enough energy to penetrate standard Warsaw Pact aircraft carriers. 
but it remains, and this is the important point, one of the most powerful air-to-ground attack rockets to this day. So would be incredibly useful if they could fit it to things like F-16s and the Gripens if they get them. And as Corey mentioned, there are 83,000 of them stored and slated for disposal. Now, the Department of National Defense in Canada is considering donating these rockets. There is an issue of, you know, how safe is it to move them? But the Ukrainians are in no doubt. We're prepared to take the risks. If you are, please send them to us. So, you know, it's another one of these classic scenarios, isn't it? A lot of talk going on. Uh, Meanwhile, Ukrainians could use these uh, systems very effectively, I suspect. Now, the debt of Alexei Navalny clearly has uh, had an impact on our listeners. We've got several questions, one from Oliver Hugh-Jones, another one from Johan. And Oliver's point really is that uh, that he he found Lord Cameron, formerly David Cameron, the um, British Foreign Secretary, his reaction to it is rather laughable, uh, saying that the the UK government is going to sanction the prison chiefs. I suppose that's the um, penal colony bosses or the Russian prison authorities from coming, uh, preventing them from coming to the UK and freezing their assets, if indeed they have any overseas. He says, come on, does Lord Cameron really think that prison chiefs care at all about travel to the UK, etc.? And he says, now's the time for the UK and Europe to step up to the plate and make a serious difference in helping Ukraine, a multi-pronged attack to overwhelm Russia's defences of the Kerch Bridge would be a fitting reaction. Well, yeah, that would be one way of doing it. But Johan sort of draws our attention to a YouTube clip of an old Russian couple talking about the war, uh, and they're pretty critical of Putin, the Kremlin, the overall situation in Russia today. Not so much about the the special, so-called special military operation, but more about the kind of corruption, lies, attacks on civil rights and liberties, the economy, interesting that, uh, you know, people are not despite all the money being poured into into the war economy, it's clearly not actually making life better for ordinary Russians. And he asks, with Alexei Navalny now a dead man, any form of opposition crushed to the bone, are we about to witness a revolution from the older Russian generation? Well, I think that's not very likely, but it is more and more evidence that uh, this picture that we get painted by the Russian authorities, that everyone's behind the war, etc., these mass rallies and, and all these sort of, you know, glittery sort of show busy presentation of it as being a sort of you know popular that the war actually has the approval of the majority of the population is clearly not the case how this is going to translate will it translate into political action will it seriously undermine putin and his regime only time will tell but i think we've always got to bear in mind that my view is looking at russian history from what i know but if when it comes, it'll come suddenly and without much warning. I think the, the experts we've had on the show are pretty much of the same mind, aren't they, Saul? Yes, that's right, Patrick. Okay, we've got an interesting one from Robert here. And this relates to the statistic we gave last week about the fact that the average age of Ukrainian troops is now 42 and no enlistment of men under 26. And we gave the comparison with the number of people who are serving Uh, in France during the First World War, which is roughly 10 times the number that are currently serving uh, in Ukraine, and yet they have similar-sized populations. So Robert's question is this. When I was on a vacation this summer at Lake Louise in Canada, I chatted with a bartender at a roadside hotel who was a Ukrainian young man about 20 years old. He told me he left Ukraine with his elderly mother a few months after the war started. And this gave Robert pause for thought because 
He was told that no males of enlistment age could leave the country. Does this enlistment age of 26 mean that all those under that age are free to leave? If so, I imagine there's been a large exodus. And his second related question is, was, you know, in a nutshell, I'm not going to go through the whole detail of this, but he's basically saying, Surely we've always been told, which is a point we've made on the podcast, Patrick, that young males, you know, don't have that kind of fear factor. They they don't really sense their own mortality. And therefore, it's very useful for them to have to use in fighting. So uh, the point made by Robert is, uh, I'm thinking, was the failure of the summer counteroffensive possibly due to there being no 21-year-olds to lead the charge, to take the crazy leaps that create victory in close-fought engagements? Were all these 42-year-olds just too cautious? And his final point is, you know, was Trump right all along? Should Western taxpayers really be funding this operation if young Ukrainians themselves won't fight? So some quite provocative questions there. Um, and I'm going to deal with a couple of them. And the first one is uh, the question of were the Ukrainians too cautious? Well, um, I would prefer to see more of the younger soldiers there because, you know, as I said last week, they need to share the the burden, frankly, and it's too much of a strain on these older guys. But it is a really interesting question as to whether or not an older, in inverted commas, army is slightly more risk averse. In the end, fortune favours the brave, as we know. Uh, so it's an interesting question. I can't answer it one way or another. We do know that, generally speaking, the Ukrainians are very keen to preserve life. So whether they're 18 or 35, uh, there's the same sort of mindset among senior Ukrainian commanders, which might have been the real reason why they didn't make more inroads. But the second question I don't agree with at all. I mean, in the end, what Ukraine is trying to do is preserve its brightest and its best, its young men. I think they should be, uh, as I say, uh, sharing more of the burden. But the idea that we shouldn't be supporting Ukraine because 18 to 26 year olds aren't fighting is patently nonsense. The question is, is Ukraine fighting a just war? Yes, it clearly is. And therefore, is it in the West's interest to support it? Whoever's doing the fighting, the answer to that is also yes. So no, Trump was not right on this one. Yeah, no, he's absolutely right about the uh, attitude towards risk declining quite steeply the older you get from my old war reporting days. In the early days, you know, I was very keen to get up to the front. It's not so much to see what's going on, but it's also kind of testing yourself to see whether you've actually how you react to uh, danger, uh, to be coming under fire, etc. Well, you know, in my case, uh, I, my taste for it uh, was blunted quite rapidly. <laughs> so uh, I completely agree with that proposition. Um, now, Rob Buckingham from Canada wants to challenge some criticisms that I think you made, Saul, of the Ukrainian army about their conduct of the withdrawal from Avdivka. He says, as an ex-infantry officer in a NATO army, presumably the Canadian army, I only ever conducted planned defensive withdrawals in training at, at the small unit level. It was difficult enough against a pretend enemy in the sunshine. To break contact with the enemy and withdraw in an orderly fashion is a hugely complex operation. It takes very detailed planning, communication, rehearsals, discipline, and localized fire superiority for the breakaway. Presumably that's when you actually, you know, pack up and go. A defensive rearguard force is required to engage the enemy while the main friendly force withdraws in a predetermined order with heavy fire support at the signal of the higher commander. So he says, in the chaos of overwhelming Russian fire superiority and offensive pressure, due, of course, to that lack of ammunition we were talking about earlier, the Ukrainian army has to be commended, and all this in winter mud. The fact that the 
Ukrainian army managed to break contact with what I consider minimal casualties is an impressive achievement. I hear from open source information that Russia had at points an eight to one manpower advantage. Ukrainians probably had sporadic communications with their frontline troops and not enough localized artillery support or air cover or surprise. So he says it's easy to be critical, but they're doing a fantastic job against overwhelming odds. Well, you, I think, Saul said it was slightly underwhelmed by the Ukrainian performance after Yivka when it came to pulling out. What do you make of that? Well, I still hold to the broader point that uh, it's a question of timing. So, but but of course, Rob is absolutely right. It is incredibly difficult to withdraw from contact. I suppose is the simplest way of putting it. Uh, particularly when you're surrounded on three sides. That was really my point. You've got to kind of reset the line before it becomes almost impossible to get people out. But it does appear, contrary to some of those reports, which were almost certainly uh, emanating out of Russia, that it descended into chaos. Actually, uh, in 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 retrospect, now more detail is coming out, it seems that they didn't actually lose that many soldiers in the final uh, counts. Um, this talk of a thousand captured seems to be exaggerated and that it was actually a relatively orderly withdrawal under incredibly difficult circumstances. So thank you for that, Rob. I think I think you've made a really important point there. The UA, the Ukrainian army does come pretty well out of all of this. Uh, should they have got out a little bit sooner, I whatever movement they eventually made, should it have happened a little bit earlier, I think it probably should have done. But, you know, let's not split hairs here. They still did incredibly well under very difficult circumstances. Um, I'd just like to read out a couple of um, pats on the back we've got, just really to emphasise that, you know, we really love doing this podcast and it's nice to know that our efforts are appreciated. So I hope you don't think that we're being... Two, pleased with ourselves by just mentioning one from Paul, who says, at its best, I think this podcast has been the pinnacle of coverage of Ukraine. Early interviews with the likes of Max Hastings were seismic for me, even though the news now is much darker and more bleak. He says, all the best and thanks for keeping me so engaged over the last many months. Michael Baldwin in the same vein says, I'm a big fan of the podcast and I've been grateful for the regular Ukraine updates since the war has largely dropped out of the news, or should I say my news. Both your stances on the tragedies occurring in Palestine, Israel and Lebanon are unbiased, thoughtful and compassionate. Please keep it up. By the way, Michael just says that he lives in the southeast of France in an area that regularly sees the Rafale French jets streak past as they practice low-level manoeuvres. And uh, he's recently noticed a large increase in the frequency of their training flights. They're flying lower than usual. Do you think this could be related to the Ukraine conflict? So I think he's hinting that we might see, in view of what Macron said, uh, that we might see French jets uh, over Ukraine say, well, I'm not sure about that, but it would be a very interesting development. Okay, that's all we have time for. Do join us next Wednesday for another episode of Battleground 44 and also Friday when we'll be returning to Ukraine and answering listeners' questions. Goodbye. Goodbye.